Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, Inspire Church. Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. I have a question. How many of you enjoy camping? How many of you enjoy, you're campers, you, you love camping. Yes, yeah, you love camping. I know our senior pastor, Pastor Phil, and his entire family love camping, go camping all the time. I have a love-hate relationship with camping. I have a love-hate relationship. It's beautiful to get out there in nature and everything, but man, let me tell you, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And uh, I remember one year I went camping and my sister let me borrow a tent that supposedly was this easy pop-up type of tent, right? And, uh, and it was supposed to be like a large tent. I'll tell you right now, that thing was as large as I am skinny and it was not easy to put up. In fact, when I, by the time I got done, the top of the tent was sagging so low that when we go to lay down, it was like touching our faces. It just looked horrible. And to make it worse, we were walking down like towards where the lake was with my, uh, with my wife and my daughters. And, and there was somebody else at a different campground that had the same exact tent I had. And my daughter looked up at me and said, see, daddy, that's how it's supposed to look. I was like, you little punk. <laughs> Camping. Well, let me tell you something about camping. Most of us that go camping, we go away and we might do that for a weekend or, or the well as they go like two weeks or something. Like it's like, they, like it's nonstop, right? It's crazy. But, but, but there was a time where this is how people lived. They were camping. They, they, they lived in tents. They migrated in tents. This is how even for a time the people of God lived. And right now, we are in the middle, well, not the middle, we actually just began last Sunday a Christmas series titled God With Us, God With Us. And I highly, highly recommend that you go back, if you have not, and listen to the message, check out YouTube, podcast, whatever it is, because that sends, uh, does a very good foundation for where we are headed in these next few weeks. And Pastor Phil did a great job. And I just wanted to sort of remind everybody a little bit uh, and just kind of review that God is with us is really the entire theme of Christmas, right? And throughout scripture, we see where God desires to meet with men, to dwell, to tabernacle. All those words, meet, dwell, tabernacle, they're interchangeable. So when you look in the Bible and you see dwell or you see tabernacle, it all means the same. It means for God to come and to meet with us, to, to be with us, to interact with us, his people. And if you remember last week, God gave very specific plans and patterns, blueprints, if you will, on how to build a tent. And I'm sure his plan was a lot better than the blueprint I got for the tent that I was trying to build because I couldn't put that thing together for nothing, right? But it was very specific for a place where God can meet with Israel, a place where heaven touched earth. D.A. Carson puts it this way, the tabernacle's meticulous design is to teach us that the only approach to God for sinful human beings, his covenant people, are by the means that God himself has appointed, by the sacrifices that God himself has commanded, in the terms that God himself lays out, by the priests that God himself ordains, and by the blood that God himself prescribes. In other words, to understand the tabernacle is to understand Christmas. Wow. 
But like Pastor Phil said so brilliantly uh, last Sunday, the tabernacle also presented not just a place of meeting, but attention. Attention. How can a holy God dwell with unholy people? The realities of Christmas do not just bring festive tranquility, but terrible tension. God with us. And so today I continue this set, we continue this story, we continue the journey. And last week we kind of did a bird's eye view of the tabernacle and and, and where it started and how it came about. And today we're zooming in and we're going to get specific and detailed. God with us, the gospel in a tent. And so if you will, would you open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31. If you are new, uh, it's the first, very first book is, is Genesis, and right after that would be Exodus. If you're not new and you can't find Genesis, well, you're in trouble and we might have to have a talk. <laughs> Exodus 31. <laughs> and the word of God reads like this. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Now, this is the first reference we have of God filling someone with his Holy Spirit. With wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. So know this, the Holy Spirit doesn't just gift you to preach or to be up here on a word, but he gifts you with all kinds of skills. To make artistic designs for work in gold, in silver, and bronze, to cut and send stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Ohilab, son of Ahismak, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. I have also given him the ability to all, ki- to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded you. For instance, the tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant law with the atonement cover on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent, the table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, and also the woven garments, both the uh, sacred garments for Aaron and the priests and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them just as I commanded you. Just as I commanded you. Heavenly Father, as we dive into your text this morning, your word is already anointed, God. I pray that you illuminate our minds and our hearts to be able to obtain what it is that you have already predestined. Before there was a star in the sky, before you created time and space, you saw this day, you saw this moment, and I pray that we as your people will uh, be able to eat and get full off your word this morning. Let it marinate within us, Heavenly Father, and I pray that it will push us towards the gospel, that we may ponder and take awe in your glory even more. In Jesus' name, amen, and amen, amen, and amen. Well, today we're going to journey through the tabernacle, and we are going to specifically focus our attention to the accoutrements or the furnishings. Because not only is it true that the tabernacle as a whole, and they'll put a picture up there, as a whole is a foreshadow of Christ and points to the veracity of Christmas, 
But every article in the tabernacle points to Christ and his gospel. Every article, every spoon, every fork, every plate, every purple linen, every, 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 every article points to the gospel, points to Jesus, you see. For example, when you look at this tabernacle here, what you'll notice is around the perimeter of the tabernacle, it is all walled off, except there is one gate. If you notice here, you don't see the gate, do you? That's because I wanted you to know that all of that perimeter, all that surrounding area there, you cannot access. In other words, in order to get into the tabernacle, there's only one gate, one door, one way. See, even this gate points to the reality of Christ. John records Jesus as saying, I am the gate for the sheep. Jesus also said, I am the door. He also said, if anyone enters in me, he will be saved. And again, Jesus said that no one can get to the Father except through me. See, in order to get to God, there is no other door. There is no other path. There is no other way except for the name of Jesus Christ. And if that's true, write this down. If it is true that the tabernacle and everything in it points to a greater reality, then that has serious repercussions for you and for me. If it's true that the tabernacle and everything in it points to a greater reality, then that has serious repercussions for you and for me. Now, anyone that has taken this journey soon discovers the multi-symbolism that each article represents. So let me just preface this message to say that it will be impossible for me to give this message its due justice. There are so many points that you probably wish I would have brought up or that I could have brought up. But with that said, what we're going to do this morning is we're really going to walk through three zones. If you look at this picture here, you'll see that, that you'll see the tabernacle kind of from above. Three zones, and, 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 and you'll see the gate, and then you get to all of the various stages. And so let me just explain to you these zones. The first zone is where you see they're called the outer court. There it has the brazen altar and the laver. That's called the outer court. That's zone one. Zone two is what you call the inner court when you first enter into the covering of the tent. And there you have the altar of incense, and you have the candlestick, and you have the table of showbread. That's zone two. Now, what's interesting is what happened in zone one and what happened in zone two happens every day and every night. Those things happen continuously throughout the day and throughout the evening. But then as you progress and you get to the final zone, this final section, which is behind this veil called the Holy of Holies, you only went there once a year. And only one person, the high priest, could. Now, next week, I'm going to be talking about the high priest and what all that means to us. So there's going to be some things that uh, I save until then. But basically, we go through these three zones. Zone one is God's priest, the outer court. Zone two is God's people, the inner court. And zone three is God's presence, the holy of holies. So let's start with zone one, God's priest. And the reason I say God's priest is because it is in that zone that the priests were ordained and prepared to be priests, you see. Let me ask you this. Have you ever heard anybody say, oh, a good God would never send people to hell or demand a blood sacrifice? You ever heard that? Or how about, oh, that's Old Testament stuff. That's the Old Testament God. I'm New Testament. I I believe in Jesus. 
or God's love outshines his justice, which is actually an ancient heresy. Because see, to get rid of God's holiness and to get rid of God's justice is at the same time to get rid of his grace and his love. In other words, if you want to take away God's justice, if you want to take away God's wrath, if you want to take away God's holiness, you cannot do that without also taking away his grace and his love. So you may remember that back in July of 2009, Harvard professor Henry Louis Gates was mistakenly arrested for having pushed open his own door because it was jammed. And the police of Cambridge, Massachusetts were accused of racially profiling Gates because he is black. If you remember, President Obama invited Professor Gates and the police sergeant James Crawley to the White House, to the White House for what was properly called the White House Beer Summit. And the police, of the, the police uh, uh, there of Cambridge, Massachusetts were accused of, uh, of, ro- uh, of racially profiling Gates. But nonetheless, President Obama called them together to this summit to kind of show some sort of reconciliation. But what was interesting at this summit is that this was a microcosm of our culture's belief. Because at this summit, there was no real accountability There was no call for remorse. There was no call for confession of sin. There was no need for true reconciliation. It was just a photo op, as if that would do the trick. Because, see, we have a grave confusion between the relationship of God's love and justice. And when you enter into the tabernacle, the first piece of furniture that we are faced with is the brazen altar. The brazen altar. And it looks like this. And what this does is it fundamentally challenges our weak misunderstandings of the nature of who God is and who we are. You see? It challenges it. Because what they would do is they would bring a bull or a sheep or a goat. They could even bring a turtle dove or a pigeon. But it had to be male And it had to have no defect, and it had to be perfect. It had to be those things. And they would bring this to the brazen altar. And what the brazen altar shows us, and really quick is this, really it shows us a need for satisfaction of our sins. See, when you entered in and saw this huge altar before you, you knew immediately that this wouldn't just be any sacrifice, but Exodus 38 explains that it would be a burnt offering. Now, there were all kinds of offerings, and we'll get into some of them next week, but what's interesting is Leviticus tells us three times that the fire of this altar may never go out. It had to be kept burning at all times, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It could not go out. Now, what's crazy is when they had to do the very first burnt offering, the question is, well, where did that fire come from? Well, let me tell you right now, Moses did not go and get a match. But the Bible lets us know that God called fire down from heaven to initiate this first flame, this first fire. And from that point on, it had to continually burn. And this is for a couple of reasons. One is that the penalty of death is eternal because it is a, it is a sin against an eternal God. But second, the fire could not go out 
until God's justice was satisfied. So, the, so as they would bring these bulls and these sheep and these goats to be burnt, it was in an effort to satisfy the justice of God. Satisfaction. The second thing it shows us is need for confession. Because they want to just throw an animal on top of the altar, right? But, 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 but what they did is they would come together and, and, and they would lay their hands on the animal and they would confess the sins of the people. And there would be this symbolic transfer of guilt, if you will, that, for, that when they put their hands on the animal, there was a transaction and, and the animal would then get their guilt sin and the people would then get the animal's innocence because the animal wasn't sin, didn't sin. Humanity sinned. So there was a transaction there, you see. But when that transaction happened was when there was confession. See, because before you can enter the presence of God, there has to be repentance. And finally, before we move on to the next item is it shows us the need for substitution. See, this is where God's justice and God's mercy meet. Because through the penalty for, because though the penalty for sin is death, God is allowing these innocent animals to die in the place of the people. This is why it was so serious, because every time the people around the tent, they would continually smell the burnt offering. Night and day, they smelled the smoke. They smelt the flesh burning every moment of every day. They were standing in gratitude, grateful that that's not their flesh burning. Grateful that that's not their blood that was spilled. Because they knew it was supposed to have been them dying on the altar. The need for substitution the need for confession, the need for satisfaction. But see, there, 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 there had to always be this, this question in the back of their minds. How can these impersonal animals really take away personal sin? And the answer is they couldn't. They couldn't. Which is why these sacrifices could pacify, but they could never satisfy. The book of Hebrew tells us exactly that. That the blood of these animals could never take away the sin, could never actually do it. They were just placeholders, if you will, pointing to the real lamb. Every bull, every goat, every sheep, every pigeon, every drop of blood would one day be the blood of the perfect, innocent, without default, without, without any fault at all, son of God. He would be the final substitutionary sacrifice that would die in the place of humanity and finally not just simply pacify but satisfy the justice of God. After the brazen altar, you would then approach this next article which was the bronze laver or basin. The bronze laver was for the priests to wash their hands and feet before they entered into the next zone. And Exodus 30, 20 says they, they did this because if they didn't, then they would die. If they tried to go into the next zone before washing their hands and washing their feet, they would be struck dead the moment they entered. See, you cannot stand before a holy God dirty. You cannot stand before a holy God dirty. 
But I have good news for all of us. When Christ died, his people were cleansed once and for all time by his blood shed on the cross. We no longer need a ritualistic washing with water, or as my great-grandmother would say, a washing with water, to come before God. Because Christ has, as Hebrews 1.3 says, provided the purifications for sin. The Bible says that when Christ comes back for his church, that she is to be without spot or without wrinkle. She's to be washed, and she is under the blood of Jesus. And once again, we see the gospel in the tent. God looks at your stained shirt, but instead of asking you or forcing you to try and clean off the stain, knowing that your efforts will never work, it would never come off. So instead, Jesus comes along and he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, stop what you're doing. And he says, here, have my shirt and I'll have yours. So you can enter into the presence of God. Has to be washed. Has to be washed. There's so much more to say about each of these things and I wish I had time, but I do have to move on. And just to know this, that next week we'll pick up on some stuff that I leave off, but, but this is important to know. There's one thing that, that I want to mention before we move on, which is this. If you look at this next graphic, we're going to put it up again, where you see the picture from a bird's eye view of Moses' tabernacle. What you first see is the brazen altar. Then you see the brazen laver. What you first encounter is the blood. And then the next thing you counter is the water. And let me tell you something, church. It will always be the blood and then the water. It always has to be the blood and then the water. It was first the, the, the blood that happened in Egypt and, and, the, Egypt, and the Hebrews went and they, and they killed the lambs and, and put the blood on the doorpost so the death angel could pass over. It was first the blood. Then they crossed the Red Sea, which Hebrew says is much like baptism. Then they, the blood and then the water. It always has to be the blood and then the water because the blood is our salvation, you see. The blood is our salvation. That's justification. The water is the cleansing, not sanctification. First always has to come justification, then sanctification. It can never be the other way around. In other words, if you put sanctification first, then what that means is you are left in a place where you have to try to make yourself good enough, try to make yourself holy enough in in order to get the blood applied to you, in order for salvation to come for you. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, oh, I feel like preaching this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ says this, that first is the blood and then is the water. That the reason we're sanctified is because we're first justified in him. After we leave zone one, we enter into zone two. Zone two, God's people, the inner court. And here what you see is really three items. And you'll kind of see this sort of inner court and outer court. I mean, in the inner court, what you'll end up seeing is uh, the lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of burning incense. First, let's look at the lampstand. See, you have to understand that once you walk in, this space, this next zone, this next room, this thing called the inner court is actually very dark. If you remember from last week, Pastor Phil went over the materials that were made from the tabernacle. And and over this tent were these three materials. And so it made the tent extremely dark. And so that way, when you walked in, you weren't fumbling around. There had to be some kind of light. 
But see, that was done on purpose because outside of the tent, you had the natural light that came from the sun. But inside of the tent, you had to have a different kind of light in order to see. Something else had to illuminate that reality. The lampstand. The lampstand. It came from a different source. This item was not made of bronze, but of gold. In fact, from this point forward, everything will be made of gold, either pure gold or wood and then gold covered. As, re as resembling the value, the worth, as you progress closer and closer to the presence of God. This item was made of gold. And there were, and it was a huge menorah. There were, there, were, there were these seven candled cups, if you would, that looked like apple, that looked like almond blossoms, these bowls that had oil in them, but not just any oil. The Bible says that it had to be pure olive oil. And there's a difference between regular olive oil and pure olive oil. See, in order to get regular olive oil, all you had to do was crush the olive. And as you crushed the olive, oil would come out from the crushing. But not just oil, but also pieces, particles of the olive would also be incorporated in that oil, making it not as refined because it would actually burn quicker. It wouldn't last as long. But to get pure oil, the olive couldn't be crushed. It had to be pressed. Pressed. Pressed oil could be in there. And this is, and this shows exactly, I mean, I mean, when we think about Paul and how he references this, what he says in 2 Corinthians, when he says, listen, we are afflicted in every way. We are attacked on every side, but we are not crushed. What he says this is we're pressed, but we are not crushed. You see. And so here is this golden lampstand with oil in it that would be burning. Now, remember that the interior of the tabernacle was something like heaven on earth with beautiful tapestries, with angels woven into them, making them look as though they were flying around. This was a way this, that when you entered in this, this was a symbolic way of showing that you are entering into heaven. You are entering into the very presence of God. There was a great veil between the inner court and the Holy of Holies where two huge cherubim on them signifying the, the angel with the flaming sword in front of the entrance of the Garden of Eden. And the lampstand was the shape of a tree trunk with large branches coming out of it because God wanted it to represent a tree. Why? Well, because in this place, this was in essence another Eden. It was another space, another paradise, another place where God's presence met with humanity. And so in this Eden, what would this tree represent? Well, the tree of life, of course. The tree of life. Revelation 2 tells us that those who accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, that persevere to the end, they will have right to the tree of life. The tree of life that Adam and Eve did not have access to. The tree of life that all of humanity could not have access to. Through Christ we can. But it also points to the fact how we are able to see is through God. The Holy Spirit illuminates truths to us. And as though that were not enough, what this lampstand ultimately points to is Jesus Christ who is the light. 
John tells us the Christmas story and says that when Jesus was born, he says the light has come and has shined in the darkness. The light has come and has shined in the darkness. Jesus Christ says that I am the light of the world. See, here's the thing. When they walked in and they saw these candlesticks and they saw this fire, they saw this light, there's something within them that knew that, that this is going to point to something greater. And now that we're here, we can look back and realize that what that greater reality was Jesus Christ. Revelation 21 says this, but I saw no temple in the new city. This is talking about heaven. And he says, because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it. Why? Because the glory of God illuminates the city. Why? Because the Lamb is the lamp. The Lamb is the lamp. Tim Keller says this, Christmas contains many spiritual truths, but it's hard to grasp the others unless we grasp this one first, that it is the world, it is a dark place, and that we will never find our way or see reality unless Jesus is our light. So here we are and we have the table, the lampstand, and then the table of showbread. The table of showbread. Or was also called the table of presence. This was something that was presented before the Lord in intervals day and night. There were gold uh, uh, plates and gold utensils that were used to present this bread. Frankincense and oil were poured over this bread. And the presence, and they were presented before the Lord. I want you to notice this, that frankincense was poured over the bread. Myrrh was part of the recipe to make the oil. And things were covered in gold. And when the wise men, who weren't even Jewish, shows up to the birth of Jesus, they present him with gifts of frankincense and gold and of myrrh. You see, Christmas. Here's this bread. And the oil was poured over the bread as it was presented before the Lord's presence. They would take these loaves and put two stacks and six loaves in each stack, showing 12 loaves in all, which represented the 12 tribes of the people of God. In other words, it represented all of God's people. And in a way, every article in this represents something of God's people which is beautiful foreshadow of what Christ will do. Ephesians and Hebrews tells us how Christ will present us to his Father. Another application is is not just presenting to God, but the preservation of God. If you notice that that this table isn't just a flat table, is it? But, But you'll notice that instead there's a rim around it. There's a molding there. And it keeps the bread from falling off. So theologically speaking, regardless of your soteriology, if you're Calvinist or Arminian or somewhere in between, everyone would agree that for those who are in Christ, Christ preserves. Christ keeps from falling off everyone that is in Christ. In other words, it is impossible to be in Christ and not be saved. It's impossible to be in Christ and not be saved. It's impossible to be on this bread. To be a bread on this table and not be on the table. The rim there, it displays, it represents the very protection of God. Wow. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. 
And yet, again, another application can be made. See, new bread would always come into the tabernacle, but old bread would never come out. This bread would also be eaten by the priests every Sabbath. So, so old bread never came out. New bread would come in, but old bread didn't come out because the priests would then eat this bread after presenting it to the Lord, and they would eat it every Sabbath. And then a thousand years later, Jesus would stand on the night before his death, take bread and break it, and says, this bread represents my body. I wish I had time to exhaust all of the great depths of the tabernacle. But unfortunately, Pastor Phil and I have to pick and choose. And so let's move on. After the table of showbread is next the altar of incense. See, when the priest would enter into this room, there would be light that they could see, but they would also be covered in smoke. It'd be covered in smoke because the incense had to keep going day and night. So there was this, there, there was, the, the, the room would be covered in this atmosphere of incense vapor. And what this represents is the prayers of God's people. I love it because this gives us a beautiful picture almost poetically of what prayer is. Prayer is, it, is mobile. It moves, you see. It, it, it moves. This is why you can't legislate prayer. See, go ahead and take it out of the schools. That's fine. But you can't really take it out of the schools. Because let me tell you something. I know how to pray with my eyes open and my mouth shut. I can still pray. No legislation can keep me from praying. Prayer goes out. Every day before our daughters go to school, we pray over them. And that prayer follows them onto the campus. Prayer moves, you see. Every day it follows them. Now what's interesting is the altar of sacrifice and the altar of, of incense looks similar. It looks similar. In fact, the altar of incense almost looks like a mini version of the altar of sacrifice. But there is a difference. One kills the flesh and the other kills the will. See, when you pray, you pray, Lord, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says, if you are in me and if I am in you, then you can ask anything of the Father and it will be done. Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, then all these things will be added unto you. All of these are, are ways of saying this, that you cannot serve God with your agenda over his. What prayer does is it humbles us. It makes us realize that we cannot go on throughout our day without re recognizing that there is another source that we need. See, the minute we don't pray, if there's a day that goes by that you don't pray, if there's a week that goes by that you don't pray, if there's a month, and I know it goes like that. You'll be doing good, and all of a sudden a day turns into a week, a week turns into, I, I know how it is, I know how it is. We won't be looking at anybody. I'll look over here, I'll look over here, I know how it is. You know, so, you, so but, but the minute we do that, when we stop, when we don't pray, what we're initially telling God is we're waking up that morning and we're saying, God, I got this, I don't need you. That's what we're doing. But what prayer does is it makes us say, wait, 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 let me take my dreams and my ambitions and my will and put them down and let me pick up yours. You see. Prayer that would go up and up and up and up. So here we have the three items, the lampstand, the bread, the incense, that at one level represents the people of God. But I would be remiss if I did not mention how this altar of incense also represents Christ. You see, the Bible says that Christ not only died for us, 
and then rose again for us. But as if that wasn't enough, the Bible says even right now he is interceding on our behalf. On our behalf. In fact, there are some things you go through in life that when you go to pray about it, they're so hard, they're so difficult, they're so deep that you don't even have words to say. You don't even know what to say because they're, they're, they're difficult to process. Oftentimes we want to just not even go there in our prayer life because what are we gonna say about them? But the Bible says that when that happens, the Holy Spirit comes in. Look what Romans eight twenty six says. It's in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know how we ought to pray but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. Too deep for words. Zone one, and then zone two, outer court and inner court. And now for the rest of this message, we're going to be focusing on the most inner court, the holy of holies, this third zone. Now this zone, the high priest could only enter in one time a year. And in there, even though this would be the last part of the tabernacle that the high priest would see, it actually was the first piece of furniture that God had them put together. Because it was the most important. See, behind this great veil was the Ark of the Covenant. And this is what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. Essentially, it's a box made of wood and covered in gold. I think they're going to put up right now. And, 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 and there's a lot that can be said. I don't want to ponder too much on this, but, but there is something interesting about the fact that some of these items were wood and, and covered with gold. And, and some commentators point out to the fact that, that in a way this represents the complexities of Christ. That, 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 that Christ was wood. He was man enough to represent us. He was human enough to represent us but that he was also gold. He was divine enough to redeem us. So Jesus Christ was human enough to represent us, but divine enough to redeem us. And inside of this chest were the two tablets that held the Ten Commandments, two copies, two copies, two tablets, not broken, but whole, Ten Commandments on each one. And there was also a budded staff of Aaron, and a jar of preserved manna. Now what's interesting about the two copies of the Ten Commandments, the, the, the Ten Commandment was in a way like a covenant, if you will. It was this covenant that was represented. And in antiquity, what they would do as a practice is that they would have these arcs, these boxes that were called arcs. And what would happen is if there was a greater kingdom that ruled over a lesser kingdom, then in front of wherever uh, their worship was would be these boxes, these arcs. And inside of them would be the contract. The contract, it'd be the same contract, there'd be a copy. And the, the greater kingdom would have one copy and the lesser kingdom would have another copy. Both would have a copy of the contract, you see. The greater kingdom that ruled over the lesser kingdom. But in the tabernacle, there was the ark and inside of the ark was this contract, this covenant, this Ten Commandments, which showed that this was a type of kingdom. And if there is a type of kingdom, that there must be a type of king. Oh, but he was a very different king. 
And this would be a very different kingdom. Because instead of having two arcs, one copy here, one copy there, one copy for them to obey and, and for them to go by, and this copy for them to obey and for them to go by, instead, both copies were put in one ark, in one place. It was God's way of saying, not only will I keep my end of the covenant, but I will make sure you keep yours as well. In other words, I am your God and you are my people. Even when you're not living as my people, I'll still be your God. In other words, what God was saying is I'll be faithful even when you're not. Just because you are not faithful does not mean the covenant is broken because I will die for you anyway. You see? In other words, God doesn't just demand a sacrifice, but he ultimately offers, offers himself as that sacrifice. He not only demands, but he provides. So here was the ark. The Lord focuses and localizes his manifest presence here where the ark is. The God who could not be contained, the God who could not be constrained, who could not be limited, condescends himself so low so that there can be a place where he may dwell with his people. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves you. Inside of this, as I already said, there was a jar of manna. <laughs> now, this is interesting because if you remember manna, you remember that it fell from heaven. It was like dew. They would go and they would gather up these, these manna flakes and they could make bread and stuff with it. Well, bread. But what's interesting is that they had to gather and eat it that day. Because it would only last a day and then it would spoil. And they couldn't eat it anymore. So then the question is, well, how is this jar of manna in this ark? How is it being preserved? Well, my friends, what you have to understand is this manna represents Christ. Surprise, surprise, like everything does in the tabernacle. See, in John, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In other words, he says, don't go and eat bread that spoils, but eat a bread that will never spoil. In other words, anything else you look to as your main source for life, your job, your income, your spouse, your kids, your career, your friendship, your skill set, whatever, all of that is bread that will spoil and you will only find yourself hungry again because none of that lasts forever. But when Christ is your bread, not just any bread, but when he is your bread, when he is your source, yeah. then you need to know that you came across the very bread of life. Wow. The very bread of life. As Pastor Phil began to allude to last week, on top of this box, there was this lid. And you can see there with the lid that it, and how it has uh, these angels, these cherubim over them, facing each other, covering their wings. This lid. It was called the mercy seat. Because this ark represents the throne of God. This lid represents the very throne of God. The lid of this box would be called the mercy seat. Notice when they carried it, because it, it had these poles, so when they would carry it along, there would be the lid and the cherubim, and, and, and there it says the cherubim are worshiping at the very feet 
of God, this mercy seat, this throne. And when they would carry it, it would be much like when you would see other servants carrying their kings and their kings would sit upon a throne and they would go and they would have these rods and they would carry their kings around. This is, this is really what would happen when they began to travel with the tabernacle. There were certain priests that, that, that could carry this ark. And what they were carrying was their king. What they were carrying was their king. You see, this king up above their heads, the throne. It's interesting because when Uzzah would come and steal the ark, the Bible says that he did not use the poles and, cor- and carry it correctly, but rather he, he, he constructed this oxen cart and, and, and treated the, 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 this box, this artifact, this ark, he treated it like an animal and he just threw it in the oxen cart and had it carried around. He made it common. He made it common. And for those of you who know the story, what ended up happening is on this oxen cart, they were going and they were celebrating that they got the ark. And, but then eventually the oxen stumbled, the cart t- uh, tipped over and, 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 and all of a sudden this man reached out to stop the ark from falling off. And when he reached out and touched it, he died instantly, instantly. Because this was God's throne. It represented his throne, you see. And on the lid, and as we get ready to close and we get ready to respond, on the lid, there were two cherubim that would be kneeling, as the Bible says, at the feet of God. And they would be facing each other. And then what would happen is in this, in, in this holy of holies, in this third zone, there would be a glory cloud that would ascend down and fill this room. So there's a cloud of God's glory. And anytime God's presence, when he said it, when you see it in the, in the Old Testament, and it would come as this cloud, you see. And so here's the glory cloud. Here's God's presence in between these two cherubim that were bowing and looking at each other. In fact, the Bible gives us a, a depiction of what this looks like in heaven. The Bible says that, that angels are, are crying, holy, 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 but, but they're not just saying it, but the Bible says they're facing each other, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy. They face each other, and again, they say, holy, 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 and again, they say, holy, 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 and you and I are invited to sing this song with them, the Bible says, so now you and I, we can say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, holy, holy, and in the midst of them facing each other and in the midst of the priest saying holy, holy, holy the glory cloud, the presence of God would come and fill that space and there he would be sitting in all authority sitting as the ruler, sitting as the one reigning over all holy holy, holy Wow. And so to understand this, we must understand what is holiness. If you notice in the Bible that when they began to talk about the different furnishings and they would say, well, this plate is holy or this spoon is holy, especially when it came to Leviticus. Leviticus started saying that this table is holy. What does that mean? 
See, because what we define holiness to be is behavior. Moralism. Moral, if you act moral, if you behave a certain way. But the problem is, is that this table can't act anyway. This table has no morality. This table has no behavior. So how is it holy? Ah. You see, what the tabernacle allows us to understand is that holiness doesn't start with behavior, but it starts with belonging. See, what it meant was if this, if this were a, a, a piece of the furniture in the tabernacle and, and if this furniture was holy, what that would mean is that it was set apart for the use of God only. You couldn't use this table for anything else. It's not like if you were sitting with your family and, and, and you know maybe some guests came over and you're like, oh, I need an extra table. Well, let's just run into the tabernacle and grab that one real quick. No, you couldn't. Why? Because that table was set apart. That's what holiness means, to be set apart. It was set apart for what? For God's use only. See, for you and I to be holy, what that means is that we are set apart for God's use only. Our life is his. Our life is his. Holiness doesn't start with behavior. It starts with belonging. But as long as you first make it about behavior, then you will always live under the pressure to perform. The pressure to perform. In fact, some of you are living under that pressure right now. You have pressure to perform coming from all angles. Pressure to perform in your house. Certain expectations that are placed on you. With roommates with children, with parents, with girlfriends, boyfriends, husbands, wives. There's a pressure there. There's pressure on your job from your boss or your employees. There's pressure to meet a quota. Pressure to be, a, you're, you're experiencing all kinds of pressure to perform, you see. Pressure on the team. Pressure from the coach. Pressure from the professor. You're experiencing pressure to perform. Constant pressure. And you bring that in, into the church. And now you have this pressure to perform to God. As if God needs your performance. As if you can do it. pressure to perform well if I can just if I can just be better somehow if I could just do this thing more somehow if I could use do this other thing less somehow if I could just behave a certain way or use my words like this or just think like this other thing or or if I if I create some sort of th somehow if I do this then, then, then somehow it, it'll work I know it I know it. I, I can be holy. I, 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 this thing can work. I can make God proud of me and pleased with me. And, and then maybe certain things won't happen in my life. Or maybe this won't be so difficult. Or whatever it is, whatever narrative is running, you, you have this pressure to perform. But see, what the holiness of God does is it alleviates that pressure 
And it says holiness doesn't start with behavior. It starts with belonging. Just like that table belonged to God. Just like the lampstand belonged to God. The ark belonged to God. The tapestries belonged to God. The, 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 the brazen laver belonged to God. The brazen altar belonged to God. It all belonged. It was only for God's use. I wonder, have you come to a place where you stop trying to perform and you say, God, my life is yours. I will be set apart for your use only. When you do that, then all of a sudden, you begin to realize how it's possible for an unholy people to dwell and stand in the presence of a holy God. Because check this out, what would happen is the high priest would take some of the blood that was sacrificed at the altar and he would come and he would sprinkle it there on the ark. He would sprinkle it on the ark. And here's why. Because the only way that this is possible is not by your works, but by his. Not by your blood, but by his. This is the gospel message in a tent. Under his rule, you'll find true freedom. You'll find lasting joy and you'll find peace beyond measure. When you're come together and you say, listen, I am here because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And knowing that, then you can stand and you can say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I'm not here because of my own works. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I'm not here because of my own blood. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I'm here because Jesus died on a cross. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I'm here because the Son of Man was whipped. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I'm here because the Son of Man was nailed. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. I'm here because the Son of Man was pierced. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. I'm here because the Son of Man died in blood, but then three days later rose again, defeating death. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Will you give him your life this morning? See, because you can be saved. But, but that doesn't mean that, that you're in this space and in this place where, 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 where you have totally surrendered every part of your life. That's the sanctification of what's happened. But you need to know this, that how that happens is through the work and the blood resting on what he's done. Would you stand here for As we get ready to sing, to respond I wonder today how many of us need to repent to confess to put our will down and pick up his agenda to stop running after the things that you want and start running after the things that God wants for you and for his glory. I wonder if we need to think about what it is that Jesus Christ has done for us on our behalf. 
And if we can stand here today and say, Lord, my life is yours. You are holy. You are holy.